You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call only on 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. All thoughts and opinions stated here on the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call do not reflect the views of 88.7 FM WRHU and its management, Hofstra University, as well as its board of trustees. All contrasting views can be sent to programming at WRHU.org or to 111 Hofstra University, Hempstead, New York, 11549. Good morning. You're listening to 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. This is the Monday edition of the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call, where we are talking Long Island life, national news, international issues. I'm Danny DiCrescenzo, joined as always by Amelia Sachs, Bill Rateau, and Nick Costanzo. In our first hour, should Biden run again now that he's 80? And an interview with Anna Valdez on the Latino vote and more. So stay tuned. Gotta love that new intro. Guys, another week. It's our last Monday before Thanksgiving. How are you guys holding up on this frigid, frigid first day of the week? You know what? Oh, oh go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Phil. No, I was just going to say the walk here, it was quite literally freezing. I'm pretty sure it's, well, Nick's going to get to that about the weather. Oh, he will. Uh, he but will. It was so cold. But you know what? Maybe the cold is just what I needed to get myself woken up um, this very early morning. Yeah, it definitely did wake me up. I will say that. And I am super excited for Thanksgiving. I'm so excited to go home and just get a little bit of a break. We were talking about this a little bit before the show, but I'm actually driving home tonight for break to beat the traffic to Pennsylvania. So I'm looking forward to being home. Not looking forward to the drive, but looking forward to being home. Drive's going to be awful. Nick, what about you? Yeah, the traffic is no one's best friend. I will say that. But I'm excited, and I'm excited to eat a lot of food. Yes, sir. Well, Nick, you're not going anywhere because you got to report on the weather, my friend. So what's That's going correct. on in the sky? All right. For today's weather forecast, it is currently a freezing cold 30 degrees outside of our WRHU studios here at Hofstra. And up in the sky, it is still sunny. The rest of the day should be 38 degrees with an expected high of 42 degrees during the day and a low of 38 in the evening. So please, bundle up. Yeah, bundle up is right. The doors were locked when Nick and I showed up, and there was no way I was waiting outside. So luckily, Breslin was open, so we chilled in there in the warmth. Yes. Relative warmth, anyway, until (laughs) public safety can unlock the door. Thank you, Nick, for that weather update. I mean, it's cold, no duh. But this weekend was particularly busy in terms of news. A lot of stuff happened this weekend, and we're going to get into it, obviously, in the show. But in terms of just some quick headlines, here's Sibyl's five things you need to know. Sibyl? The Department of Justice is appointing a special counsel longtime investigator, Jack Smith, to oversee criminal investigations into former President, into former President Donald Trump. California Governor Gavin Newsom is set to release $1 billion in homeless funding he paused last month. The release comes after a meeting with many local leaders in California to develop plans to combat homelessness. Just before midnight on Saturday, a 22-year-old gunman entered an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs and opened fire, killing at least five and injuring five times as many. The suspect is in custody and the shooting is being investigated as a hate crime. 
The World Cup 2022 is officially underway. It kicked off yesterday in Qatar versus Ecuador. Qatar took the win, and today is Senegal versus the Netherlands. Controversy surrounding the host country, Qatar. Um, Morning Wake Up Call has more on tomorrow's show. At least 46 have been reported dead and hundreds more injured after a magnitude 5.6 earthquake struck Java in Indonesia earlier this morning. A lot of death Nick was talking about before we went on the air, and that's true. I mean, we're going to get into the Idaho stabbings later in the show. It's just a busy weekend, not necessarily full of good things, but thank you, Sibyl, for those headlines. And our first story, it's not as much of a story as it is more of a roundtable. It's about... The President of the United States, President Joe Biden, who celebrated his 80th birthday on Sunday, the first United States President to serve in office while over the age of 80. And for context, Biden is older than George W. Bush and Bill Clinton, who assumed the presidency in 2000 1992, respectively. Obviously, questions have arisen, particularly from the right, about Biden's ability to run for a second term. If he did win, a second term he'd lead office he'd leave office at an ancient 86 years old at least in presidential terms biden told reporters quote i'm a great respecter of fate and this is ultimately a family decision i think everybody wants me to run but we're going to have to have discussions about it age has not been as loud of an issue for presidents in the past but with trump in his late 70s and biden now 80 it's been thrust back into the spotlight trump's sheer energy in the oval office really chaotic as it was quite a critics on the age front, but Biden is definitely more prone to showing his age, especially when speaking in public. One can't imagine he'd ever emulate Ronald Reagan's masterful and charismatic answer during a presidential debate when pressed about how age would impact his ability to serve. I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. <laughs> But regardless of how you feel about Biden, he certainly got some wind in his sails after a solid midterm performance for the Dems where they weren't totally crushed by a red wave. But guys, that just begs the question. I want to pose this to all of you. Should Biden run in 2024? Um, we'll start with Eeny, Meeny, Miney, Sebelia. <laughs> so, Which one? You oh, mine you? Oh, no, oh, my gosh. I <laughs> couldn't early. pick. I couldn't pick. It is early. All right. We'll start with Seville. Okay. Well, I would like someone who's younger, more energized, more progressive even to be in office, but I don't think that it's fair to say to assume that Biden is too old. I don't know. It's giving ageist. So I'm a little hesitant to say, oh, he's too old to run again. He has accomplished a lot at his age in the past four years or not four years yet, three years that he's been in office. Like he's addressed gun violence. He has improved health care for veterans. He I don't know. He's done quite a few things like that's just that's just my opinion, Amelia. Yeah, I personally, I don't really think he should run again. Uh, as you mentioned, Sibyl, he has made some big strides. He also made strides in things like infrastructure and forgiving student loan debt. But I do think that if he were to go for a second term, I think his age would inhibit him a little bit from accomplish any, accomplishing 
anything further or accomplishing like too many more uh, things. I also believe that younger candidates would maybe prefer a younger and perhaps more progressive candidate, as you just mentioned. For example, in CNN exit polls, 67 percent of voters last week said they did not want Mr. Biden to run for reelection, including a significant share of Democrats. A New York Times slash Siena College poll in July found that nearly two thirds of Democrats preferred another candidate for 2024 with age listed as the top concern by the most party members. Additionally, I just think it would be dystopic and a little bit crazy to see Biden and Trump against each other for the presidency again. However, uh, polls show that as unpopular as Biden, you know, kind of remains, he still has more support than Mr. Trump does. And the Republican setbacks uh, last week in the midterms, as we saw, have kind of undercut the president in his own party, according to The New York Times. All right, Nick, what do you think? Well, I have a little different of an opinion, uh, slightly different. He's going to try and run for another term. Almost every president ran for an additional four years. Many argue he should run again because he did pass quality legislation, and the midterm election results were more in his favor, but in my view, this was mainly because young people were motivated to vote after the reversal of Roe v. Wade. Many candidates during the midterms also did not want Biden to endorse them or give support. And look, I'm not taking a jab at the president, but a president needs to be clear, coherent, and focused. I understand Biden is older, but the leader of the free world cannot fall asleep at important conferences and meetings and walk around cluelessly. America could appear weak on the world stage. Also, Biden only has a 43% approval rating. But at the end of the day, I say to both parties searching for candidates in 2024, find someone younger and more centrist. Well, the Republicans have DeSantis assuming he can win a primary battle with Trump. I don't think Biden should really run, but assuming his health holds, I think he definitely will. I agree with you there, Nick. But he also should run for the following reasons. First of all, in a crucial election year like 2024, you don't want a divided primary. That's the Republicans' problem. Let DeSantis and Trump have a mud fight and let the winner emerge with a lot of scars to show for it. Because if Biden runs and let's say that he still has at least a decent standing in the party, he'll more or less clear the field. There will certainly be a challenger, but unless there's a certain Jimmy Carter, Ted Kennedy situation, I don't really see an issue for Biden. The Dems also have to, their work cut out for them in 2024 with 23 Senate seats to defend. So picking sides during the campaign won't help in keeping power in the Senate. And from a political perspective, Biden's balancing act is working between the progressives and the moderates. At least it seems nominally both wings of the party will accept Biden as the leader of the of their party right now. And a great New York Times article I read over the weekend, I might actually be interviewing the author of said article, points out several key facts about how Biden's life expectancy is expected to be at least eight more years, which, you know, it's, it's enough to make it through another term. Uh, people working at 80 is becoming more normalized, actually. And, and the thing is, government is full of old geezers. It's not just Biden in a room of infants. It's Biden in a room of other old people. So the thing is, you want to say, well, he stands out as a sore thumb. Well, not really. I mean, uh, Nancy Pelosi's calling it quits at 80. So in terms of him being at the right age to serve in government, I mean, there's no real he's breaking boundaries for sure. But also a lot of other people in government are old. And it's true that Biden does show his age, especially when it comes to when he speaks in public. But a president, I've told you this, Nick, is not just one man. And experts say that aging is not just associated with decline. Specifically, I'm looking at what Lisa Berkman said in that article, quote, people in their 80s commonly experience declines. We shouldn't be naive about that. 
And at the same time, there is so much variability. People who are doing well and are in a top level of functioning have odds of going for another 10 years of doing really well during this time and making very important contributions. And Berkman is a professor of public policy at the Harvard School of Public Health who studies health and aging. So there's really both sides. There's what you're saying, Nick, which is completely valid, that you want somebody young, who wants you want somebody energetic, you want somebody who, who appears to present themselves well. There's also what Bill was saying when it comes to he wants somebody who, you know, can deflect, who has experience. And, it, you know, it is sometimes it can come off a little ageist when it's when the arguments are slung at him the wrong way. But I think generally this really just the consensus I feel that most people are clinging to is that neither Biden or Trump should really run in 2024. They're both old. We've seen this movie before. We don't want to see it again. It got a 43% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, both of them. <laughs> so I don't think we want to deal with it anymore. And it's just interesting that we keep finding ourselves with these older and older leaders. Because when I played that clip of Reagan, that was really the first time that age came up as an issue. Because he left office at 77. And when he was running in 84, I believe he was 73. So he was already the oldest guy running for re-election. Obviously, Trump shattered that record. And Biden will do so if he does run again. But that's I think that we just examined both sides and I think there's merit to both camps. But I think you're right, Nick, he will try for round two. Of course you yeah. will. And as far as age is concerned, honestly, I'd like to see younger I'm more concerned about seeing like younger people in like the Supreme Court because there are like four people over the age of seventy five. And I feel like that's what's most damaging. Um, as far as like government official goes, officials go, but like I'm not disagreeing with you guys. I definitely would like to see someone newer, fresher, but we'll see. Yeah, um, Amelia, I like those stats you brought up about the exit polls, because in a midterm where so many young people did vote, it makes sense that people would naturally be averse to two really old candidates running. Yeah, and it, also to your point, Nick, not only did Biden do well now, but also he can't. It is a, an argument to be made that he already exhausted his abilities to pass legislation now that there's divided government. So just because he did good things in his first two years doesn't mean that for a potential second term, he'll have the same legislative authority. If the Republicans take the House and the Senate, which is a legit possibility, the Democrats have to defend a lot of Senate seats right. in 2024. He might just be sitting there doing nothing and ruling by executive order. Well, yes, and gridlock is going to occur for a long time, and we know this. But candidates that were running in the midterms, when they were asked, do you want President Biden to come and endorse you, they didn't answer. They danced around the question. Now, don't you want someone who thinks, wow, we love the president, he's doing a great job, if more than half is saying we like this guy, then we should bring him out there again, right? Well, also, the thing is, too, so many Republicans enthusiastically supported Trump's endorsement, right. and, and look where that got them. Trump. Look where that got them. Same thing. Out of, exactly. out of out nowhere near power. Right. Uh, so I think the the both heads of each party are just not popular. Right. I think it's fair it to shouldn't say. be Trump or Biden. I just don't think it should. But on the Democratic side, though, here's the issue. You don't have some heir apparent like DeSantis who... You know, Trump refuses to hand the reins to. Apparently, right. I don't even know who would who would really mount a serious challenge against Biden because there's problems with every candidate. I think Kamala Harris <laughs> is equally unpopular. I yes. think that Pete Buttigieg doesn't have the same luster. If Beto O'Rourke runs again, God bless him, but he's not going to do well. Um, Gavin Newsom is probably the most popular Democrat in his own state, but again, California is a little bit of a liberal bubble, especially around L.A. That won't translate nationally. I don't see anybody. Maybe, and this is maybe, Gretch, like a Gretchen Whitmer type who could do well. But that's if you move the primaries for the Democratic Party up, 
you switch Iowa, you replace it with Michigan. The primary order is going to be super important because I think Iowa voters will do a lot more for Biden than they will for a newcomer. Do you guys agree with that? Right. Yeah. I think Newsom is not a bad decision for the Democratic Party. You can also balance out that ticket with uh, people today. You can. Or a Southern Democrat. Right, or a Southern Democrat. Exactly. You can balance the ticket that way. I think that would work. I think two governors going at it, if you have DeSantis and Newsom, I think that's a fair match. I think that also reflects how politics has changed since 2020 and that governors have become more relevant in the minds of voters. Like, obviously, they were always important, but... You would wake up. I would wake up every morning, and I would be watching the press conference from Andrew Cuomo on my TV. Like that never happened. I w- I'd be like, who? I w- I didn't even. Know, I honestly, and I, this sounds so sad. I didn't even know who the governor of New York was when I was in high school. I had no idea. Wow. I mean, same. Yeah. 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 I, I guess you're not from the state. Yeah, but like New York is right next to New Jersey. That's, That's the thing. I also didn't know who Ron DeSantis was until. 2020. I didn't know who Brian who Brian Kemp was until 2020. I didn't know who Whitmer was until 2020. So the thing is, now that we've seen local governments take more of a lead in policy, it would make sense that two governors would go at it in 2024. But I don't know. I don't know if Newsom is the guy. I think Biden is the presumptive favorite, unless he really can't do it anymore, unless his age really starts showing. Right. And or if there is a serious challenge. But I don't think people are willing to go at Biden simply because they know that there's going to be a, a a real brawl on the Republican side, and they don't want to uh, take away from that. You know, mm-hmm. if they're attacking each other, good for the party, good for the Democrats. But any final thoughts on Biden now that he's in? What is it? Octogenarian? Is that the word? Yes. Yeah. No thoughts. Well, look, if he he's going to go out and do it, we all know he's going to try to. But it depends on if his family says, "Well, let's take a break," because I believe is it over fifty percent of the time he's at his Delaware house. Yeah. Well, well, I mean that we've seen that That's with, a we've seen that with concern, Trump right? too. Yeah, I think it's when you're older, you you just want to you want to relax, play golf, chill out in Delaware. I well, mean, it makes when sense. When you're the president. Yeah. Yeah, but when you're the president too. I mean, it's a busy <laughs> it's a, it is a busy job, but I mean, yeah. you're and let's face it, everyone's always going to critique the president when he's not in the White House, but it looks like Biden and Trump have done this a lot more lately and you can't help but think it's because of age or it's because of access to other li- areas to live. In Trump's case, because of his wealth, and Biden's case, because he's had Delaware as his own personal fiefdom due to his tenure, tenure as a senator. But right. that's all we got on Biden being 80. Happy birthday, Mr. President. And uh, from the morning wake-up call, consider not running again. You know, I heard retirement <laughs> will treat you well. Um, but speaking of the midterms, when it comes to the red wave, that wasn't. I spoke to one New York Times opinion columnist about why that was the case and what that means for the future of democracy for the country and for 2024 let's take a listen you're listening to the Hofstra morning wake-up call on 88.7 fm wrhu i'm danny DiCrescenzo, joined by thomas b edsel an opinion columnist for the new york times his recent article the red wave didn't just vanish examined the republican party's poor showing in the midterm elections mr edsel thanks for taking the time my pleasure so i want to look at the first line of your article because it really caught my eye and you wrote quote on election day, a small but crucial percentage of Republican voters deserted their party, casting ballots for Democratic nominees in several elections that featured Trump-backed candidates at the top of the ticket. These Trump-driven defections wrought havoc on the Republican ranks. Can you expand and elaborate on what you meant by that? Well, uh, what happened really is that in races where Trump had backed the candidate, and especially, well, mostly he backed candidates to agreed with uh, that the election had been stolen, 
those voters did less well, significantly less well, from four to eight points less well among Republicans themselves, uh, uh, and was crucial to their defeat on election day. In effect, this was a sign that a segment, it's a small segment, but still it's a crucial segment of Republicans themselves, Republican voters, are not uh, pleased with Trump that they uh, and the stop the steal, and they would really like to get off it. Uh, it's by no means a majority of Republicans, but it is a, uh, a, a sign of real problems for the Republicans if they nominate Trump in 2024. You really hone in on Michigan, where Gretchen Whitmer beat Tudor Dixon, the Trump-backed Republican candidate, and the GOP was completely shuttered from the state government. What is the magnitude of that kind of outcome in this midterm election for the Republicans? Well, M Michigan is the extreme uh, in terms of it's That's almost a democratic wave. It is a democratic wave, uh, the reverse of what people expected. And Michigan is a state where the Republican Party historically has been quite strong, even though it's a, a st state where the auto industry is, the unions were, used to be strong there. But it is a state where race has played a big role and this really represents a triumph for the Democrats in that state. Part of that is that the uh, Republicans ran a, uh, a lot of uh, stop the steal kind of voters, uh, candidates rather, and there's a history there of the attempt to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer, uh, which may well have played a role in bringing things out. And perhaps most importantly of all, abortion was on the ballot in Michigan. Uh, which which really helped Democratic turnout and turnout among women and people who were cons are concerned not just about abortion, but that the idea of the Supreme Court becoming an unelected policymaking entity willing to take positions contrary to the public, contrary to public opinion. And it wasn't across the country. There's one example I really keep coming back to, J.D. Vance in Ohio. Ohio is a pretty solidly red state. Ron Johnson as well, though he was already a U.S. senator before this election. In the cases where the Trump-backed candidate won, why was that the case? Well, in the two point, one cases you point out where the Trump-backed candidate did win, uh, they still did much less well than the average Republican vote. They lost... Republican voters and independent voters uh, compared to the the normal Republican vote, the average calculated. So it did actually affect those races, but they were still able to win because the defections were not large enough uh, to result in their defeat. Where, where it really hurt were places like Arizona, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, New Hampshire, uh, all those places uh, in both gubernatorial and uh, Senate races, it's, that's where the defections were really there. And it's really the reason why Democrats still will go into next year with at least 50 seats and effectively a voting majority in the Senate. Uh, and it's why the House uh, will only be Republican by a relatively small margin compared to the anticipation of 20 plus seats we're going to get switched. And if you're just tuning in to the morning wake up call, I'm Danny DiCrescenzo joined by New York Times opinion columnist Thomas B. Edsel. 
I want to dive into this defection a little bit more because it seemed over the summer, besides the Dobbs decision, all the environmental factors of the selection were favoring the Republicans, specifically the economy. Why were the Democrats able to buck historic trends, given that they had an unpopular incumbent president and the economy was not doing so well? Was it just Trump and his influence or was it other factors, too? There was other factors, too. Trump was a very important factor. And the effect that he announced shortly before the election that he intended to make his announcement of running again in 2024, really, you can see a vote shift after he made that announcement, a shift against Republicans. The other interesting finding, NBC uh, and, uh, well, a Republican polling firm, Public Opinion Strategies found that uh, actually abortion ranked almost as strongly among voters in terms of their high priorities as jobs and the environment. And uh, the threat to democracy ranked much higher than people thought, almost the same as concern over inflation. So you had actually a balancing of, int- of issues and uh, you can't really prove it, but I think Trump's entry late in the campaign helped take off the focus on Biden and his problems. So again, I, I, I think Trump is a crucial factor going into this. And if, uh, I think Democrats are now praying that he is the nominee in 2024, as opposed to someone like DeSantis or the governor of Virginia, uh, who who would likely not carry the same negative numbers as Trump. So with that being said, if Democrats want Trump to be the nominee, what sort of odds do you give him based on his political viability? Does he have a legitimate shot to be the nominee? Is it being overblown? Is it being underblown in the sense that he's being underrated, given that he announced so early? What are your thoughts about his path to the nomination? I think he's got a, uh, he would be the, he is the favorite. And there's no question that that there are many, many Republican voters who are loyal to him. But what's interesting is uh, another question that uh, NBC News has asked over time is they ask Republicans, are you a Republican because you're a Trump loyalist? Are you a Republican because you believe in the Republican Party? Early throughout most of the Trump years in office, a majority of Republicans said they were Republican because they believed in Trump. That switched, and by now, it's the percentage of Republicans who say they are Republicans because of the party as opposed to Trump is now double that. There's a lot of weakening of Trump's intensity, you might say, the intensity of support for Trump among Republicans. So the path is going to be perhaps harder, but you have to consider him the favorite at this point. He has a a residue of of support. When you run in a primary, especially if there are multiple candidates, having a base of of 30% or 35% is a huge advantage to go in because it means you can win uh, multi-candidate contests. If it's a head-on race between, say, him and DeSantis, that's another question, and that would really test his strength beyond the 30 percent and you'd have to see that certainly donors republican party donors are showing increasing wariness toward trump and uh 
it that many of them are signaling they would support DeSantis or Glenn Youngkin in uh, Virginia or someone else. Uh, so it's a real toss-up ball at this point. And if you're just tuning in to the Morning Wake-Up Call, I'm Danny DiCrescenzo, joined by New York Times opinion columnist Thomas B. Edsel. There is a lot of GOP infighting among the elites because Trump always has that 35 40% base. He won a lot of primaries in 2016 with less than 50% of the vote. And what do you make of all this GOP infighting, whether it's far-right challengers to Kevin McCarthy for the speakership, McConnell seeing backlash from the Trump wing of the party, or these Republican donors showing reluctance to back Trump again? What is going on in the higher rungs of the GOP right now? Well, anytime you have an election where you do not do as well as expected, there is always a lot of turmoil in the party that failed to meet expectations. Uh, this is one way back. Newt Gingrich lost his speakership because the uh, party failed to meet expectations. So there's always a reaction and there's always a turmoil in the party. People look to others to blame. That's what's going on. It's an inevitable process. The question is whether that can be contained by someone like Trump or someone else or whether it lingers on. In case of Kevin McCarthy, he won the speakership, but he's now got to figure out how to keep the Freedom Caucus uh, under somewhat control. Or are they going to insist on, for example, shutting down the government when the the debt ceiling comes up for a vote? And there are a host of other votes that are going to be important. Is it going to turn into a kind of a bloodthirsty, investigatory uh, Republican House at a time when it's not clear that the public really wants that? uh, And could they endanger their uh, their own majority by behaving that way? The Republicans do look very strong going into 2024 in the Senate. There are, I can't remember if this is exact right, but I believe there are 10 Republican seats and 23 Democratic seats. So there are up for up in 2024. And the Republican seats are all in deep red states, whereas the Democratic seats include at least eight and really closer to 10 that are in competitive or red states like Montana or West Virginia. So in the in the Senate, uh, the, the Democrats have really got their work cut out for them. I'm glad you brought that up because that was going to be my next question. That was a point in your article that stuck out to me that this election cycle, Democrats had a relatively easy task in the Senate versus in two years. and. You mentioned now it has a short half-life potentially because they're going to have to defend a lot of seats. I want to ask you one more question. An analysis by Neil Newhouse and Jim Hobart found that a far higher percentage of Democrats, 81%, believe that Republicans represent a threat to democracy that, if not stopped, will destroy America as we know it. When you flip it to the Republicans, only 69% believe that of the Dems. Can you elaborate on the significance of this polling and what it means for the future of democracy? Well, it means that uh, Democrats are willing to vote on the issue of democracy. It's a much more intensely held view on their part. And I think it grows out of the fear of Trump, the fear of the kind of actions he took, his authoritarian qualities, and most especially the January 6th insurrection. Whereas Republicans are ambivalent 
uh, about January 6th. Certainly the elected officials are more than, are less than ambivalent. Uh, so, so what it means is that actually the d- democracy, though, is a stronger issue than a lot of people thought it would be uh, going into the 2022 election. And it turned out to be uh, uh, that a substantial number of people rated it quite highly on their uh, list of top, top two issues going into the voting booth, which are for the health of the country actually makes things look good. And once again, that was Thomas Biedsel, an opinion columnist for The New York Times and a professor at the Columbia School of Journalism. We just got wrapped up talking about the disappointing midterm results for the GOP. Mr. Redsell, thank you for chatting. My pleasure. Good to talk to you. Thanks. Once again, that was Thomas Biedsel from The New York Times talking about the midterms. But we'll shift away from politics for a moment to give you some updates on that terrible incident that happened in Idaho. Amelia, you got the story. Yeah, so in Moscow, Idaho, police are continuing to investigate the murder of four University of Idaho students. The the victims were killed in a house near the campus last Sunday morning. No no suspects are in custody, and two female surviving roommates were at the house at the time and were not hurt, according to Moscow Police Chief James Fry. The surviving roommates were home when the police responded to a call for an unconscious individual at the home at about noon, Fry said. The roommates were not the 911 callers, according to the Idaho State Police spokesman Aaron Snell, and the 911 caller's identity hasn't been released. First of all, I just want to say my heart goes out to all of the victims and their families. This is just such a tragedy, and it hits close to home considering the fact that we're on a college campus right now, and there are a lot of off-campus residences that surround the school. There are just so many unanswered questions about this, and I'm just I'm sure it'll be in the news uh, for weeks to come. Danny, Sibyl, Nick, what do you guys oh, think? This comes on the heels of a lot of violence at schools. You hear University of Virginia, New Mexico State. So there's a wave of violence going on around college campuses nationwide. And it's it's making me very, you know, it's obviously appalling, it's tragic, but it makes me very uncomfortable too. And I think the, the fact is, as you mentioned with the questions, there has been contradictory, there have been contradictory statements from Moscow's police department where they said the day of the attack that they do not believe there's an ongoing risk and then they said on Wednesday, three days after the killings, they said we cannot say there is no threat to the community. And also the mayor told, told the New York Times that this was a crime of passion, but now he, say, now he says he can't be 100% sure. So there's just, there needs to be a more thorough investigation. We need to wait for answers. And that's the unfortunate thing. Something like this happens and you're left waiting for so long. And the fact that it's just on a college campus too, it, it, it does hit close to home for everyone here. Yeah, I mean, I remember um, reading about this uh, the weekend that it happened, and it was interesting because it did happen on, I believe, the same day as the University of Virginia shooting, and it's just very disturbing to see that this is starting to become seemingly a trend um, for violence to occur on our, on or near college campuses, and assuming that the roommates are innocent, this is definitely going to be a difficult time for them. Um, but it's interesting the way that details are being released because due to the fact that there are certain details that only the murderer would know or more murderer or murderers would know there isn't like they're not uh, police aren't releasing everything about the crime but hopefully the person is caught soon and hopefully there isn't another incident and that this like that the campus isn't still at risk and this 
completely shutters life in the town. School is shut down, just like in Virginia. The campus community is in, is in tatters because you're shattered at something like this happening. You know, it's not just, oh, it's not just the people who have died. It's also the community itself that is wounded by a tragedy like this. And it's going to take a long, long time for them to recover because the loss of life, especially young life, is never, it never goes away easily. The scar will probably never really, truly heal. Amelia, anything else on this? Yeah, um, I'm just looking at some more facts on the case. And another thing, you know, you're talking about the community, Danny. Um, Moscow, Idaho hasn't had a recorded murder in seven years. Wow. So not only is this shocking and devastating because it happened on a college campus, and of course people lost their lives, um, the town itself hasn't seen something like this or even seen any murders in seven years so it really is just shocking and it's just rattling the community and i hope we can have answers soon because this is just it's devastating yeah and also the colorado uh, nightclub shooting that happened over the weekend still another incident of <clears throat> violence mass violence it's just what it's just what's going on you know there's always these spurts where it feels like there's so many things happening at once and it just it never it never ends even though this this was a stabbing not a shooting but still same result loss of life uh nick we'll give you one crack at it before we have to get out of this what do you have well college kids please be careful make sure i would say be friendly with everybody because you don't know who's really crazy and i really hope they find this guy and justice is served hopefully well that's going to do it for our update on the Idaho situation when we come back. An interview with Anna Valdez. But first, here's some jazz for you this morning. 36 past the hour, 88.7 WRHU. This is the Morning Wake-Up Call. Hofstra's Morning Wake-Up Call. Morning Wake-Up Call. You are tuned into the Morning Wake-Up Call only on 88.7 FM WRHU. I'm Nick Costanzo, joined as always by Danny, Amelia, and Sibyl here on Monday. Let us pivot back to politics really quick. Joining us over the phone to discuss the impact Latinos had in the 2022 midterm elections is Anna Valdez. Anna is the chair of the Diversity Task Force for the Trust for Public Land National Board. She worked as the presidential appointee for the Clinton administration and for the United Nations Commission for Human Rights. Anna, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me, Nick. Absolutely. And, and by the way, those titles are former. Uh, my title today former. is uh, CEO of the Latino Donor Collaborative. Correct. Absolutely. Well, thank you. And now I'm going to start right away. So based on exit polls for the House of Representatives, 60% of Latinos voted for Democrats, while 39% voted for Republicans. That represented a slight gain for the GOP, but not enough to create a red wave. Why did most Latinos still vote for Democrats? That's a really great question, Nick. And the interesting part is that people just assume that Latinos are naturally Democrats. And that's debatable. We have a big difference, for example, between Cubans and you know, the Mexican uh, community, which is 67% of the, of the uh, Latino community, that, and mostly living in the West Coast and in Texas. So it, it's hard to generalize, but what I can tell you is this. The values of Latinos are mostly in the middle. 
Latinos are in general socially liberal and fiscally conservative. So I believe that when people take the vote of Latinos for granted, it's a big, big myth because Latinos go to the party that welcomes them and parties that deliver. So then how would you say that the Latino candidates from both from both parties resonate with Latino voters in this election? I do believe that it was more by the issue. I don't know if you noticed, but the very, very um, towards the right, I don't want to, um, to, to use any of the common terms, but in the most conservative of the way, Latino candidates lost. You know, we saw candidates in the south of Texas that were supposed to shine, didn't shine, um, and their counterpart that was more to the center in some, in some uh, occasions more liberal won. I do believe that, again, Latinos vote in a lot of different ways, the Democrat, because they felt more welcome. But when a... Republican candidate shows interest, not only in one rally or two, but in the campaign overall, candidates' values, they attract Latinos. And I do believe that that happens to every kind of voting cohort. And with the Latino population in the United States rapidly growing, how can candidates, regardless of political party, start coming up with ideas to connect with Latino voters? That's a really good question. First of all, acknowledging the Latino vote. I don't know if you've noticed, but everybody's talking about how Gen Z's won the Senate for Democrats. And of course, we know that the Senate was won by Democrats via Arizona and Nevada, right? At least those were the last two that defined it. And people talk about the Gen Z vote, but they are not talking about the Latino vote. I do believe that both candidates and these outlets would um, have a tremendous competitive advantage with the Latino community, which is, by the way, the fastest growing voting community, if they actually acknowledge what we are seeing, which is Latinos brought those people and those voters to Democrats. And it was actually not even the DNC. It was groups of activists, groups of grassroots organizations that actually mobilized because they were being attacked by ultra-right um, people that were anti-Latino, anti-immigration. And it's not only anti-immigration. It's very targeted. The immigration issue has turned into anti-Latino so even though the majority of in the last five years haven't come from Latin America, but still in some ways and an unfortunate way, it's animum, right? And so I do believe when you ask me how do parties attract Latinos and how do candidates engage Latinos, I would say acknowledge, say, hey, thank you for your vote for my party or for my area or however you want to do it, however the case is, acknowledge them, talk to them. Most Latinos today are American. The big wave of immigration stopped in 2008. 
and there are some Latinos coming in, but mostly that are born here now. So acknowledge them as you would acknowledge any cohort and talk to them. You don't have to necessarily cater only to those values, but Latino values are amazing. Just talk to them. So speaking of immigration, which you went a little into, based on exit polls, 60 percent of Latinos that felt immigration was a top issue voted for Democrats. So why do you think a majority of Latinos believe that Democrats are best to tackle this issue? Well, you've seen the anti-immigration rhetoric. I mean, we had, and I don't want to get political, but we had a former president opening his campaign saying that Mexicans are racist and criminals. And from then on, right, um, not only the president, but, you know, many people in the party that followed him, you know, had that rhetoric. And we know, you all of us know, the candidates that won this election because of it. So, again, I, I, I dare to say that it's not the values of, the Republican Party today that um, send that message of rejection to the community is the rhetoric. It's the, you know, let's set some electrifying, you know, parts of the Rio Grande so people just don't arrive, right? Or um, these people are coming, are takers. And, you know, all this rhetoric that you and I have heard, which I hate to repeat, but I, I honestly believe that it's in a lot of different ways. It's not the values of the parties, it's the rhetoric of the moment that um, are, that is rejected by the electoral community. And unfortunately, we are out of time, but thank you so much for joining us and giving us your input. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Well, thank you so much again to Anna Valdez for joining us this morning. And Thank you, Nick, for booking that interview. Uh, that was great. Great job, man. Thank you. Really appreciate you getting a live guest on the air for us. Um, but we're moving on to our final story of the hour, and it's back to the college front. Yale and Harvard Law are out of the U.S. News and World Report rankings, but they'll be ranked anyway, and U.S. News doesn't seem too concerned. So Yale and Harvard, two of the most prestigious law schools in the country, no longer will submit data to U.S. News and World Report's rankings of America's premier colleges and universities. The reason is that they have issues with the methodology and how the rankings allegedly proliferate disparities between institutions. Deans Heather Gerken of Yale Law and John Manning of Harvard Law each released statements criticizing the rankings, but it is important to note that the backlash to these rankings from all sectors of higher ed is well documented. But parents and prospective students still value them, not just U.S. News, but other ranking system as well. Executive Chairman and CEO of U.S. News, Eric Gertler, has responded by saying, quote, the U.S. News best law school's rankings are for students seeking the best decision for their law education. As part of our mission, we must continue to ensure that law schools are held accountable for the education they will provide to these students. And that mission does not change with this recent announcement, of course, referring to the withdrawal of not only Yale and Harvard, but a trend has begun now. Georgetown, Stanford, Berkeley, and Columbia are also out the door. So I'm sure you guys have at least perused college rankings when you were searching for your institution of higher learning, guys. So I want to get your take on what you think of this development, schools pulling out of these very well-known ranking systems. Um, yeah, I think that when it comes to choosing a college, you should just do your own research, honestly. I would recommend, if you can, you know, booking a tour, taking a look at the school's physical website, or even reaching out to former students. 
I think that these kinds of rankings, while they're definitely, they definitely can be reputable and sometimes accurate, they can also be misleading. And I think that when it comes to, again, picking a college, you should just do your own research and go with what you think is best. Um, in a statement from Yale Law School, Dean Heather Gerken said that she, uh, instead of being a part of these rankings, the school will instead provide prospective students with data in a, quote, public, transparent, and useful form to help in their decision-making, which I think this is more a little bit more beneficial than these overall general rankings and lists. Nick, I know you feel the same way. Oh, I do. I do. Well, first of all, Hofstra is number one. Okay, Hofstra is always number one, regardless of which list it may be. In our hearts. In our hearts, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. But in all aspects of life, one thing for someone can be the best thing ever. And that same thing for someone else could literally be their worst nightmare. So some schools, yes, are better than others. But just because it is number one on a list does not mean it will be number one for you. So do your own research, closely look at every aspect of each school, and then make your decision. Sybil, what do you think? Yeah, I think that these lists and rankings are maybe a little outdated and definitely not as relevant as I think a lot of high school students might think. Um, I think that research, you have to be very specific to your own interests, your own um, goals, and your own plans for your personal future, and not necessarily who's number one on what list. Um, so I think that this isn't a terrible thing that's happening, uh, Danny. Yeah, I, I agree. And I want to get into why specifically Yale didn't like it. So I think it sheds some light on these rankings. So here's what Slate wrote about this issue. School-funded positions can be a problem. Here's the quote. The rankings penalize schools that support postgraduate public interest work. U.S. News considers law school employment outcomes in its rankings, and it heavily discounts school-funded positions. Because of its strong commitment to public service and its deep coffers, Yale Law funds numerous public interest fellowships for its graduates. And this hurts YLS, Yale Law School, in the rankings, end quote. Now, it is true that in the past, some shoddier schools have used this to boost their employment numbers, at least nominally. But when you apply this to a school like Yale, whose public fellowships are actually very prestigious and they're not some run-of-the-mill legal job funded by the school, it makes zero sense to penalize such a a high-ranking institution because those jobs are sought after. They're not just, you know, patronage positions. Additionally, the one-size-fits-all metric is also not a good way to go about it. So let's say you grew up on the island, right? Going to Hofstra Law might be more beneficial for you financially, socially, rather than going to or trying to put your hat into the ring for, say, Stanford Law, right? If you're a lifelong Long Islander and you want to stay close to home, Hofstra Law is probably your best option, assuming that's where you want to go. So as to Nick's point, just because it's the best doesn't mean it's the best for you. You know what I mean? So I think this is a good move. I don't do. Do I think this will destroy the college ranking system? No, because I think our society is obsessed with who's the best and who's not, who's not the best. Um, but I am certainly encouraged by what I'm seeing from these schools and clearly other top institutions that I mentioned when I started talking, Georgetown, Stanford, Berkeley, Columbia, following Yale and Harvard out the door is a good sign because now you have these top, top schools who aren't a part of this and it I guess it'll skew the rankings. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, while there are other top schools, these are, I would say, like, the two that people consider to be the number one, like, either whether you're aware of this list or not, when you think about, like, the best school in the country, you're going to think Harvard and Yale. So I think that this is maybe, you know, the beginning of 
maybe not the downfall of the rankings of schools, but something. Um, but yeah, I definitely think that, you know, like you were saying, Danny, and what Nick was saying, what's best for you, like, might not be what's considered best in the country or best generally. Um, but yeah. Yeah, and do and do your own research in the sense right. of understand how they're ranked. That public mm -hmm. fellowship quirk that penalizes Yale, just because that penalizes them in the rankings doesn't mean that's actually a, a bad thing for them. In fact, as I mentioned, it's one of their unique traits that the system just unfairly ranks negatively, right? So you need to take all that into account. Although I do remember being a little bit obsessed with where schools ranked when I was looking for a school. And that's something I'm glad I got over in time because I'm obviously happy here. Obviously. Yeah, mm -hmm. th thanks, Nick. Well, <laughs> I actually got into Yale myself. Really? Did you really? No. Oh, oh. <laughs> you I did man. not get into Yale. I did not. I did not even apply to Yale. I mean, I used to see my art teacher from high school. He had the Yale diploma, and it just scared me. It gave off this energy and vibe. It was just so prestigious. But no, Hofstra is number one. I just that's a fact, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Oh, of course. No other school has the morning wake up call. That's uh, for sure. Right? Mm -hmm. Although I did actually visit Yale one time because oh, I was going wow, to visit schools really? in the Northeast and. I, we passed through New Haven. I'm like, let's just let's just go for a visit. Why not? It's actually yeah. really cool how the campus is set up. It's like a yeah. little town. But, must be uh, nice. Yeah, it must yeah. be nice. But not nicer than Hofstra. <laughs> <laughs> I remember in high school thinking that um, when I was applying for jobs in the future that they would go based off of like solely what school I went to. Not my major, right. not my GPA, nothing like that. I really thought that it was about what school you went to. But ultimately, that's not really the case. It. I mean, there are certainly some schools that you know in some ways are better than others but i think that it's more so about like if the program benefits you the most that you're going into and what your grades are but did you ever see suits <laughs> no the i show didn't. and in the show they're always like oh we only hire from harvard oh that's yeah <laughs> so like but i don't think that's real i don't think that's real life i think yeah i think most companies who are not super elitist they examine a candidate holistically and not just what school is on their diploma. I think yeah. that's fair to say, maybe. You would I mean, hope. You, you would hope. Know. You would you would <laughs> really hope hiring, you would right? really hope that it's not just <laughs> who you know or who you got your education from. Exactly. Yeah. I mean I could imagine though that if you see Harvard on a resume or Yale well, that it'll catch yeah. a catches, person's eye. It does but, catch the eye. But ultimately let's hope that that's not like solely what you're going on. Yeah, and there are other uh, ways after. to catch employers are let's say you got a Fulbright scholarship or something like that. You don't have to go to an Ivy League to get one of those. Or a Fulbright smile. That helps too, Danny. Yeah. Uh, I think yeah. we're talking about a different thing. Well, yeah. But still a smile's good. It can get you a yeah, job. Yeah. You never know. <laughs> yeah. Amelia, say what you, what about did you have any college ranking stories for us? Any college ranking stories? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I was pretty much, I was between Hofstra and St. John's University in Queens because I wanted to be in close proximity to the city. And how I kind of stumbled upon Hofstra, they, you know, they're really good at outreach and at, you know, sending out like letters and whatnot. I know I have a lot of friends from California. I have a friend from Illinois. So they're really good at, um, you know, finding people and marketing. And yeah, I spoke to someone at a college fair and then I booked a tour. And then once I got accepted, I booked another tour. Um, and a lot of how I learned about it was through my own research, as we all just kind of talked about. We all just kind of agreed is the best method of determining what school is best for you. Exactly. And I know my mom's listening right now. She purchased me a massive book that ranked 
pretty much every school in the country. I forget what it was called, but it wasn't U.S. News. And I would live reading that book. I would circle, all right, wow. this school is 22nd in this, is 33rd in that. And it was unhealthy. It was unhealthy. I developed a really warped perception of what was good and what was not good. Luckily, I broke out of that. Although I will give my mom credit, that purchase did help me at least start thinking about college. The, the, guidelines, the, gui the guidelines and the rankings, they're a baseline. They're the foundation. Obviously, schools have a reputation for certain things, and then you have to investigate that specific reputation, right? So I think that's, so I think, I applaud my mother for getting me that book, although I'm glad, I'm sure she's glad as well, I grew out of that mentality of number one is number one and that's it. Um, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in the lore of you guys picking Hofstra. That was a great story, Amelia. I think you've told me you were between <laughs> Hofstra and St. John's yeah. before. Yeah, I was between Hofstra and this, uh, college in upstate New York, Hamilton, and then never heard of that. Yeah, I've heard of Alexander Hamilton though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but um, great play. Yeah, great musical. Oh, musical. Not musical. A play. Oh, excuse spare me. me. Spare musical. me. Musical. Oh no. Have you I actually saw it live. You did? Really? I did. Nice. Yes. Was it good? I, yeah, it was awesome. It was awesome. Did, was it with Lynn? No. Because oh. with the other guy, I know it's bad. I don't know his name. <laughs> I'm calling him the other guy. What's his name? Does anyone know? I don't know I, his name. I, I he was no great, clue. though. Seriously, he was really good. And the king was very funny. Yeah, the king is always funny. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that's a uh, great college discussion, guys. I think we're all in agreement. U.S. News, got to take a chill pill. Either reform, reform or die. That's, that's, our, that's our ultimatum to U.S. News college rankings. What a great first hour here on The Morning Show. We're just about to wrap up our first of two great 60-minute segments here on 88.7 WRHU. Any final thoughts before we transition to hour two? You guys ready to go? Yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll miss everybody for the next 30 minutes. We'll try not to cry about it. We'll try not to cry <laughs> at all. Well, uh, don't go anywhere because we have plenty to talk about in hour two. You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call, 88.7 WRHU. Proudly broadcasting from the Richard Philip Cavallaro Studio. WWRHU. Hempstead. You, you discovered. You discovered. A cornerstone of the Lawrence Herbert School of Communication. WWRHU. You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call only on 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. All thoughts and opinions stated here on the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call do not reflect the views of 88.7 FM WRHU and its management, Hofstra University, as well as its board of trustees. All contrasting views can be sent to programming at WRHU.org or to 111 Hofstra University, Hempstead, New York, 11549. Thank you for joining us here on 88.7 Radio Hofstra University. We're in hour two of today's morning wake-up call, where we are talking, of course, Long Island life, national news, and international issues. I'm Danny DiCrescenzo, joined, as always, by Amelia Saxe, Bill Barteau, and Nick Costanzo in this second hour. The meltdown of Twitter and some dating advice for young singles. Don't go anywhere. All right, hour two, let's go. We're going to start with um, our favorite weather from future News 12 meteorologist, 
Nick Costanzo. Nick, I love it when you tell me what's going on in the sky, so I'm going to ask you to do it right now. Go well, for that's it, what I do. Go, go for it, my friend. So, for today's weather forecast, it is currently an ice-cold 32 degrees outside of our WRHU studios here at Hofstra. And up in the sky, it is sunny. The rest of the day should be 38 degrees, with an expected high of 42 degrees during the day and a low of 38 in the evening. Hot chocolate and mittens are helpful on a day like today. I cannot wait for some hot chocolate when I go home. Likewise. That's going to be great. Thank you, Nick, for the weather. And we have another edition of Sibyl's Things You Need to Know. Only three, because we have a lot to get to in the second hour. But these three things, I put these three things up against any anything that we didn't talk about in the first hour, because obviously the top of the first hour was the most important stuff. But Sibyl, what else is going on in the world? Well, first off, do you remember Olivia Dunn from last week? This was the American gymnast slash influencer that we talked about. Well, since our show, she posted a video of her attacking those critical of her NIL or name, image and likeness strategy with the caption only taking steps forward. Lawmakers in New Zealand are set to decide whether to lower the age voting, the age of voting to 16 and an asteroid was captured on camera soaring over the toronto area as it entered the earth's atmosphere earlier on saturday morning wow scientists believe that fragments may have fallen in ontario not far from niagara falls olivia dunn really just heard us talk and be like mm, i'm gonna clap back I'm going right? to clap back it at, was these, definitely at, these, at these Hofstra kids. <laughs> well, thank you, Seville, for the things we need to know. And a lot happened over the weekend with Twitter, and you're probably, probably wondering, why didn't you talk about it in the first hour? Why wasn't it your top story? Well, don't worry. I did not forget about Twitter. None of us did because it's really hard to, even if you're Nick and you're not on Twitter, but we'll get into that. Um, that's because thanks to our very amazing vice dean here at the Herbert School, Mario Murillo, we have a great interview about Twitter, and we'll get into it right now. So the Twitter tailspin obviously continues as we speak. Hours before a Thursday deadline that Elon Musk gave Twitter employees to decide whether to stay or leave, the social media giants saw a huge exodus of workers, and they accepted a three-month severance payout in exchange for their services, or their lack of services now. This comes after Musk fired more than half of Twitter's staff when he first purchased a social media company for $44 billion. The disarray that Twitter finds itself in is forcing many of its users to consider abandoning it forever. I've seen plenty of hashtag final tweets over the weekend. This is especially impactful for journalists who have relied on Twitter for their daily work. Ever since really the Arab Spring broke, it's been a massive fixture of people reporting news. One example is veteran journalist Tanzina Vega, a former New York Times and CNN reporter who most recently hosted a national daily talk show for NPR. She wrote an op-ed for the Boston Globe last week, which describes her current love-hate relationship with Twitter. Our vice dean, Mario Murillo, spoke to Tanzina Vega on Friday and asked her to explain what she was getting at in her op-ed. Let's take a listen. You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call, 88.7 WRHU. The frequency, 88.7 FM. The call letters, WRHU. The website, WRHU.org. Hofstra's Morning Wake Up Call. Morning Wake Up Call. Lively talk. Long Island life. National news. International issues. Through the minds and mouths of Hofstra students. Yeah, I mean, I remember working for the New York Times. I was a producer for the website. And this was back, I want to say, 12 years ago. 
and I was so unsure about what the site was really for and did I have anything to say and, you know, sort of what was I going to say? And I mean, I don't remember what my first tweet was, but I know that as my emphasis in my reporting began to focus on race and inequality and the economy, that's when should we say, quote unquote, the conversation really started taking off, not just on social media, but, you know, across media. And suddenly, you know, these conversations that we were having and the coverage of race became a central part of Twitter. In fact, I mentioned in the op-ed, um, you know, the first time I saw the body of Michael Brown, who was the unarmed black teenager who was um, murdered by a police officer in uh, Ferguson, Missouri, was on Twitter. And I will never forget seeing the photo um, of his body laying um, on the ground and, and trail of blood. And that was the photo that really sparked a movement, uh, which ended up becoming hashtag Black Lives Matter. I should I should clarify that Black Lives Matter, you know, started on Facebook, but the but the movement itself, the the conversations around, you know, what was happening to black Americans and has been happening to black Americans at the, you know, historically, but finally there was a place to witness. Finally there was a place where anybody who was coming to the site could see for their own selves. And we've seen that, you know, that happen also with videos and photographs and, you know, particularly in instances of police brutality. So, so for me, you know, that photograph really changed the game and changed what Twitter was about for me. And I think for a lot of other folks as well, the conversations that began happening, the hashtag movements that began uh, sprouting up, the, the way that Twitter suddenly began to be used by activists, by people of color, by black people in particular, um, to bring awareness to racism and to police brutality, but also to, again, show what many people may not you know, have wanted to see the reality of police brutality. And so this was a movement that was captured on social media. And often, you know, even in my own reporting at The New York Times, I referenced Twitter and black yeah. Twitter in particular, which was a game changer for The Times itself. Absolutely. Not to mention the mobilizing capacity that that it created, uh, not only in the U.S., but if you look around the world and in, in this is the Arab Spring, uh, certainly in Latin America, a lot of the social protests that we were seeing in Latin America, in many ways uh, facilitated by by the use of Twitter. Um, so, so these are, again, some good things about Twitter. And I want the other component that you describe, again, something good in your relationship with Twitter is you describe as a single mother and how that creates a sense of community as well. Talk about that. I had a baby, my first and only child, um, at the very beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, six weeks before lockdown. And who knew, right, that this was going to happen? Who knew that, uh, you know, my first and only child late in life, I'm, a, I'm an older mom um, as well, would, have, would coincide with this, you know, global catastrophic pandemic, frankly. And, you know, I, as a public figure, as a journalist, you know, at the time I was hosting a, a very popular radio show with, you know, two and a half million Americans listening every day. 
and yet Twitter was still important. And, you know, I was tweeting about, you know, you sort of have this weird double experience where you're like, you know, at least I was like, well, I don't want to share too much of my private life. So I'll just tell people I'm on maternity leave. But it happened that when I returned, the game had changed, right? We were now in a pandemic. And I was suddenly hosting a radio show in a coat closet uh, with a newborn baby on the other side of the door. And no one expected that, least of all me. And so I started tweeting about what that experience was like and talking about and writing about what it was like to be a new mother um, in a pandemic and particularly a solo mom, you know, really navigating this space on my own and and particularly in a moment where you you physically and could not meet other people. There were no mom groups. There were no play dates. There were no, um, you know, come over and, and hang with the baby. You know, I did not have that experience that most new moms, uh, new parents, I should say, have. And so our my experience was extraordinarily isolating, um, both professionally and personally. And yet going on social media and going on Twitter in particular and telling my story in some ways, you know, just bits and pieces of it, including the exhaustion, frankly. Um, you know, I, I did a tweet I remember once about hitting the pandemic wall. And just because of, you know, this was like, I think a year and change into the pandemic and we'd all been working from home. And, you know, my son had recently gotten the, the virus. He was 15 months old. And so, you know, we were tired. We're still tired, frankly. We're still burned out. And that tweet resonated with so and, and it was this juxtaposition of being in lockdown, in quarantine, alone, isolated in an apartment. And yet hundreds of thousands of people saying, wow, I, I hit the pandemic wall too. Or single moms reaching out to me in, in my DMs, right? Saying in direct messages saying, I'm a single mom too. Um, solidarity, um, you know, or it just, just messages of support. And it was so wonderful. You know, it's like we're, we're, we're physically isolated, but yet there are so many people that identify with the challenges that motherhood and isolation and the pandemic all, all presented. So it has fostered a community of people. And, and that's really important, especially for people who are isolated. You know, there are people right now on Twitter who are, who are saying how, how Twitter helped them not feel alone in, in, if they were victims of domestic abuse. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it helped some people say, you know, some people who were, who were stuck in, um, there was a really bad storm in Texas about a year ago, uh, freezing ice and snow. And people were tweeting about how they were learning about ways to stay warm and safe in those conditions on Twitter. And so it, it has a, a, you know, we often say it can be a hellscape. And, and I will, I'm happy <laughs> to describe what that feels like because it sure can. But it's also, you know, I mean, our hellscape, right? right. And in many ways, it's become a place where, where strangers can have create authentic connection. And I have to say, as a New Yorker who's skeptical of everything, even I've made authentic uh, connections there. 
Those are the good things. And I want to comment, particularly in your commentary in the Boston Globe, you write what he, meaning Elon Musk, appears to want to ki- want is to kill the one thing Twitter has been good for, which is creating community and giving a voice to the people who have spent years building an audience and sharing their ideas and information. And so the, you, you've described that community on many levels just now. Um, but there's also the negative aspects, the the profoundly negative aspects. I recall, I mean, social media, there were scholars and activists and organizers saying how social media was going to transform the the public sphere, that people were now suddenly going to have their voices heard. There was so many projections of positive gains that social media were going to provide. In many ways, the same discourse that media activists in the 1920s and 30s were talking about radio as a democratizing media uh, a communication tool for education, for community building, et cetera. The same language by those who are saying social media was going to do that, but we've seen how destructive it has been as well. So how do we balance that? Because in, in, in deep down in my heart, I recognize the importance of these, these tools. But on the other hand, I say, you know, let it dangle, let it go. Who cares? Um, so how do we balance that? Well, I think that's what Twitter tried to do um, as a company. And I think they uh, they did a pretty good job. In fact, I remember being on Twitter for the first few years. Um, it's been 12 years now. So for the first few years, you know, anybody could get at anybody. And what I mean by that is, you know, I had a pretty serious death threat. Um, you know, that had to be reported to uh, law enforcement. There were people who went above and beyond just jabs, but real uh, racist um, threats and very scary things that were happening. And so Twitter had to figure out as a company what the standards were. And we've seen this happen on Facebook and, and other places, right? What are the standards for decency? What And how do you balance that against free speech? Right. And so, you know, and again, this is a private company, so it's not that, you know, as we're seeing um, with Elon Musk's buying of the company and, and, and subsequent, uh, I mean, I should say that right now, about 80 percent of Twitter's staff, at least according to reports, are gone. Many of the staff have left in protest. Uh, so there, there are many questions about whether or not the site itself will even be functional in the next couple of days. Yeah, people uh, are bailing. People are bailing. Yeah. I mean, that's And and people, people who are working at Twitter have decided that they're not going to do it anymore. And it's unfortunate. There are some people whose jobs are connected to visa status. And so those folks may have a more complicated way out, but, um, but right now the majority, and again, these are based on uh, not my reporting, but reports I'm seeing uh, are saying that about 80% of the staff um, has left. And so you cannot build a company that way. And, and part of the functions, part of the first functions that were um, that, you know, whose folks left were people who were in charge of this kind of content moderation, right? How far can we let people go? Death threats are not okay, right? Um, and so Twitter had to, even all the way up to President Trump, they decided to deplatform the president for another issue, which was misinformation. And so misinformation is rampant on social media. Facebook is also has also found itself dealing with that issue. So the companies themselves 
themselves, the platforms themselves have had to grapple with what guardrails to put in place, which they themselves can do because they're private companies. When you put those guardrails in place, what happened now then was that advertisers became attracted to the platform, right? Mm -hmm. Suddenly you have big advertisers, General Motors and all these other folks, you know, right. banks and, and places, airlines, like big money, you know, advertisers, uh, blue chip advertisers were putting their ads on social media because now, you know, as, as chaotic as it could be, they knew that people were there. And they knew that influential people were there. President of the United States has a Twitter account, right? And so, so those guardrails have to be put in place to protect the users and also to ensure a certain amount of revenue, at least for these platforms, which comes from advertising. Yeah, but I, I still think, Tanzina, that a, a lot of it has to do with the structures that have been put in place in this country and globally in many ways, because the U.S. has had influence on uh, communication technological and, and, and kind of structural development all around the world is uh, basing our kind of public communication system on, you know, the way we communicate as a public on the private sector. Uh, and this was bound to happen. It happened in broadcasting. You know, we racism, misrepresentation, misinformation has been part of our uh, uh, communication uh, ecosystem for decades, not just because of social media, um, but social media has just put it on stero digital steroids and now it's like everybody's doing it. And so I think that's the question. How do we, can we create a common carrier for a tool so essential as Twitter or as Facebook when it's in private hands. Um, so, I mean, I don't know your thoughts about that, but I think this is something that nobody's really talking about. Nobody's really no. getting that deep into it. In fact, in fact, that's part of the, you know, as you, if anyone's on Twitter today, there is a combination of, and I mean, literally like today, this, this day that we are speaking, it's a combination and myself included of people who are saying their goodbye tweets, you know, people who are saying, uh, this is where you can follow me next. You know, I personally am on LinkedIn and I'm on, uh, Mastodon, which is the next, you know, platform that people are attempting to, to migrate to. But there is also the question that you that you rightfully raise which is we need to figure out we users of these platforms need to figure out what how do we manage the public square in a, in in you know social media so to speak if it's not in private hands and you know it, oftentimes we would say well facebook and twitter are utilities right almost like like the way we look at google right the internet now is considered a utility we can't live without it and yet you know right now you know one of the things i i said very early on when musk bought twitter for 44 billion dollars was he bought it to break it uh, you know, the power of the platform has been in its craziness, but has also been in its sheer breadth of people that you can connect to on there and um, like it or not, you know, whether they respond to you or not, many folks have open feeds that, you know, talking about, we just, we're coming, you know, we're in year three of a global pandemic. There were uh, medical doctors there and, 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 and people who, who deal with um, uh, these types of disease and viruses talking directly to us about, you know, here's what's happening. Here's what you need to do. And so there is a real utility 
um, for this type of information and the sharing of this type of information and the, and the accessibility that the public can have to this type of information. And by destroying it, it feels very deliberately destroying it. And part of the reason why I say it feels like that is because Musk just lost, like I said, about 80% of his staff and continues to make fun of the people who are leaving, uh, continues to poke fun at um, the people who are staying. And it just feels very cruel. Are there other spaces, maybe some kind of, you know, collectivity that could come about that's not going to necessarily follow the Twitter or Facebook corporate uh, capitalist model that that uh, has been so destructive in so many ways? That's a great question. I don't think right now anything is going to replicate the quick exchange of ideas. You have to, you have to keep in mind, and, and this is one thing a lot of people are talking about today too, is that a lot of us didn't just get to Twitter. Those of us who were on Twitter, I didn't you know, wake up and, and suddenly get 57,000 people following me. Right. This was, you know, some people, one, one person tweeted today that she's been on the site for the entire decade of her 20s. So like the communities that we've built, the following that we've built, the people that we've started, you know, engaging with, that didn't happen overnight. So nothing is going to immediately replace that. What is emerging is what what is emerging are some alternative sites that are trying to sort of, you know, mimic or replicate what social media, what Twitter has done. Many of them, though, so far, and one of them is Mastodon, which has a number of different servers. And I just set up my own uh, my own uh, Mastodon account there. But I was invited to a, a journalist group, for example. Right. So it's probably going to be a lot of journalists. So so there are, there are attempts to try and, you know, hold on to this community. But you won't be able to replicate what was built over a decade. We'll see what happens. It is sad. Um, and I think what makes it sad is that you know, if Elon Musk had said, and, and to my point in the in the op-ed, if he had listened to the people, and there were people who were willing to pay, it wasn't that people said we're not going to pay for this. They said we're not going to pay for verification. We're not going to pay for something that feels corrupt. You know, but if it, Musk had said, look, we need, you know, uh, advertising revenue is falling and or whatever. And uh, would you all spend five dollars to subscribe to this? I do think people would have said yes. That was not what was on the table. And so um, so we're now watching the destruction of, of a pretty popular hell site that many of us have loved and uh, has been a vital source of information and community on top of also being a pretty difficult place to be. And I think deep down inside, a lot of us are hoping Twitter will pull through or the engineers, you know, will somehow, you know, stage a coup. Yeah. But uh, right now, you know, it's not looking too good. So we'll yeah. see. An engineering coup on Twitter, perhaps, perhaps. But I wanted to get your opinions, guys. And in case you're just joining us, 23 past the hour on the morning wake-up call, 887-WRHU. I'm Danny with Sabil, Amelia, and Nick Costanzo. Twitter, guys. It's been a while. It's been a long, long weekend for the social media giants. What are your thoughts on what's going on? We'll start with Amelia. I think that it just seems like he's trying to push people's buttons with every decision he makes. And it's kind of just like a slap in the face to a lot of people. He's like, oh, well, if you don't like it, like you could leave. I don't know. It's just I don't think it's a great way to run a company. And, you know, bringing back Donald Trump, obviously that's problematic. And, and yay. 
And yay. <laughs> We're seeing the effects of that as well. Uh, I think a lot of people are leaving the app specifically just because of that, too. And I feel like Twitter, it used to just be such like a funny, stress-relieving app. And of course, you know, there were arguments and debates that were held on there. But for someone like myself, I just use Twitter as um, comedic relief. So it's yeah. kind of just becoming this like stressful, hectic, crazy thing. My issue is that he's being so callous with, what, in my opinion, the primary public forum for communication. You know, whether Twitter is the ideal version of that, I don't know. But it is the social media app. It is what most people use for online correspondence, spreading news, for example, and he's being so irresponsible with its staff that it's very vital to its daily operations. So Bill, what do you think? Um, yeah, I think that we were kind of talking about like Elon Musk while that. <laughs> oh, we were stuff. talking. All yeah, right. it was quite a riveting conversation. But um, like Amelia was saying, I don't think that he is running Twitter as he should. Um, I think that we, we are on the brink of like possibly the downfall of Twitter. A lot of people are um, signing off forever. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't know. I think that. As far as like um, Twitter goes, like I think social media company, I mean not social media, sorry, news organizations are gonna suffer a lot from losing Twitter um, if it is in fact the downfall, but yeah. Nick, I know you're not on Twitter, but I know you have an opinion about this. Yes, yeah, so I have a life motto, and it is if you do not like something, do not take part in it. To everyone who is upset about the Twitter situation, I would say just don't download the app or don't use it anymore. In America, if you have a lot of money, you can do a lot of things. Elon Musk was legally allowed to purchase Twitter, and now that it is his, he can basically do what he wants. I, I get why people are upset, but at the same time, people can always create new apps and ways of communication. But yes, I never had Twitter, and I never will. I have Instagram and Snapchat, but I really don't use them. I just stay away from it all because I know at any moment whoever has the big bucks can do whatever they want. So I kind of run away from the situation and is I it, just stay out of it. Is it like you're afraid of like your data being sold or what is it? Like what? Because I also don't have Twitter, but I just think it's like, eh, I just don't need it. But wh what is it about it that you don't? It's the drama. The I drama. think all the partisanship and everybody yelling at it. But also, it's well, not yelling. As Tevzina was saying, tweeting. it's a vital tool for it journalists is. and that's yeah. the issue with me if it, if this was another social media app and he was ruining it fine but twitter as i said that is the primary public forum he has an obligation to uphold it and it's going down the drain who well, and i don't see any real app that can immediately take its place twitter especially we learned during the trump years vitally important for covering news for people to reach out to other people either especially politicians it has a vital role in our society. News organizations cover tweets. Tweets have power. We saw it with Kyrie Irving, right? Tweets have so much power, right. and it's not every social media app that does that. I can only think of a handful of examples on Snapchat where something similar has been achieved. On Twitter, it's all the time. Right. That's why I get it. You stay out of it, don't worry about it, that's fine. But if you're somebody who needs Twitter for their career, as Tenzino Vega was telling Vice Dean Murillo, it's so crucial that you have it, and then there's no real immediate replacement. Right, I yeah, actually I, agree. I agree, and I'll just say one thing before I move on. I totally agree, but 
at the end of the day, none of us are billionaires and we can't do anything about it. So that's just how I think. If I can't do anything about it, yeah, I guess I But it's unfortunate yeah. to see. It's just because yeah. it's happening so quickly. Yeah, I think it's not too much of a loss um, as far as like the comedic aspect of Twitter goes. I think that, you know, a lot of social media apps um, allow you know, the common user to post whatever random thoughts on Instagram, you'll post a random thought on your story. On Snapchat, again, your story. On TikTok, you sometimes see people like just sitting in front of the camera as you like read what would be the length of a tweet. So I think that people won't experience too much of a loss. Like I said, I don't have Twitter and I don't really feel like I'm missing out, but it is going to be a big thing for news organizations. And for the and, people who work and there. For, yeah. yeah, for the people who work there, for um, politicians, I feel like this will be an interesting way to see how, because it is sort of a new thing for like politicians to make somewhat official announcements, which I think started mostly with Trump through a social media app that was never heard of before that. So and the thing is too, when I was I was watching Nick, I was watching a little bit of Gutfeld the other night, and he made a joke in his opening monologue about Elon Musk making an ultimatum to the workers who actually wanted to work. Right. And I don't think that's right at all. I completely disagree with that sort of uh, comedic outlook on it because it's if imagine your work for Twitter. You just got bought by Elon Musk and all of a sudden he makes all these ultimatums, ushers in these sweeping new changes which is within his right as now the owner of Twitter. Right. But at the same time, shifting a corporate culture does not happen overnight. Yeah. And I think Elon Musk walked into the room thinking he could just overwhelm the platform and just shift it to his vision. And I'm not saying his vision is good or bad, but I'm saying his forcing of the issue is what caught, is what is making some people look at, hey, three months severance, I can probably get another job somewhere else. Right. I don't have to work for this guy. Yeah, I wanna go back to the point you talked about um, news organizations and it being a crucial tool for journalists, Danny. And yeah, it definitely is, you know, people will post quick videos on Twitter uh, and news organizations will reach out right away saying, oh, can we use this on our show? Can we you know, broadcast this? Do we have your permission? And a lot of the times those videos and those quick tweets you know, and those quick photos of people live in person at the incident are very useful. And if Twitter is uh, going away and you know, people are kind of fading out, phasing out of using it, then journalists will be, and news, news organizations will be losing those tools. I guess you could argue that you could use TikTok, but it, it takes a lot more time to, you know, take a video on TikTok and do the caption and upload it rather than on Twitter. It's just, it's a lot quicker and a lot easier and a lot more accessible. So I think losing that is dangerous. Yeah, exactly. Especially because the average person doesn't necessarily read a full news article. Exactly. I think that Twitter is the most um, credible uh, I hate using the word credible in terms of social media, but I think it is the most credible out of the social media sites for accurate news. Um, if you look for people with a check mark and not the one yes, you pay yes. dollars if, for. <laughs> of course, I'm talking about actual news organizations because you don't really you don't get that same news value on any other social media app, even from like the big um, news orgs. So I think that this could even cause like a lot of disinformation and misinformation. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it spiked when Elon took control of the platform. Yeah, yeah, you'd be surprised on like how easily, because even sometimes I'll fall for it. Like I'll see something and I'm like on social media and I'm like, this seems so much like fact, like the way it's written, the way it's spreading. And then I'll do like a quick fact, fact check. It doesn't take long, but a lot of yeah. people don't do it, which is how misinformation starts. Exactly. But um, and, uh, yeah. speaking of news, we're going to welcome and journalism in general. We're going to welcome a former WRHU news director onto the show, Kate O'Brien. 
good friend of ours. Currently, Kate is a producer for WJAR-TV in Providence, Rhode Island, which is an NBC affiliate. Kate, I know you've been waiting on the line for a while, but you're on the air. How are you this morning? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so nice to hear all the discussion about Twitter because I have so many strong feelings about this as a journalist. Well, Kate, uh, um, please, what do you think about Twitter? Enlighten us about your strong feelings. It is such a crucial tool to what I do now. I spend eight hours a day sifting through Twitter, trying to catch up on the news before it breaks because I'm the one breaking it. Um, so I think it's really troubling that anyone can get verified now because the sources that I would go to were verified ones. And I could go on a full tangent about this, but I know you have something planned. Yes, we do have something planned. But, um, you know, in, besides shifting through Twitter, what do you do at your NBC affiliate in Rhode Island? So I'm a producer there. I typically produce our 530 news So it's like doing news on all over again. Um, but I sit down, start my day, build my rundown at 10 in the morning. And I fill it with local stories, national stories, and then we have some preset segments that I work on. Um, so I coordinate with our health reporter, and then we have a segment called Something Good, where it's a nice feature story from the community. Um, and then beyond that, at 5.30, I go into our control room and put on the show. I booth it, so I do all our timing, coordinating breaking news as the show's happening, giving instructions to our directors, building graphics, pretty much everything besides anchoring. That's me. That's great. Uh, hi, Kate. This is Amelia. How did your Hello. time at Hofstra prepare you for your current job? Uh, it prepared me tremendously. I, Serving as news director, I had to do a lot of coordinating that maybe it wasn't coordinating a specific show that was on that producer, but it helped me look at big picture things. And I learned how newscasts work in terms of putting them together, in terms of finding stories. But I think nothing really prepares you for the real world more than election night. I was the executive producer of HBL alongside three people who are also working as producers. Um, and that breaking news mindset that you go into HBL with is kind of what I take into every day in the real world. You might sit there and put together a show and work all day on getting it together. And something could happen right before you go on air that makes you have to restart your show. For an example, uh, Rhode Island likes to flood. So back on Labor Day, I had a full Labor Day themed show together, a lot of segments that were preset that we had already together because a lot of people were going to be off that day. And then all of a sudden, the state flash flooded. They had to shut down highways and everything I had done for the show leading up to about three o'clock in the afternoon, had to go away. So it's a lot of scrambling and it's a lot of teamwork. And WRG taught me how to work with people. And I'm so grateful for that. Now, Kate, you mentioned HVL. Um, I was one of the executive producers for HVL this year. So how did election night go for you at your job? I know here uh, it went really it went really well. We were super happy with it. How did it go uh, in a professional setting and specifically at WJAR? It was honestly an amazing experience. I got a little preview of what an election night was for our primaries here because we have really late primaries. So I had like a bit of knowledge of what to do going into it, but 
honestly, there's nothing that prepares you for election night. Um, it was the most fast-paced, interesting night ever. Um, we sat down and we're preparing things a little, but it's a lot of waiting for results to come in. And overall, I think it went fantastic. We had clean shows. We had reporters all out in the field. Uh, I think something that I really looked back on while I was producing content on election night was HBL. I think, honestly, if anyone's listening to this that is on the fence about participating in HBL the next time it happens, do it. It's fascinating. Uh, In terms of election night in the real world, it's a lot of yelling in a nice way because a lot of things are breaking all at once and you have to be communicating and working with people and really just paying attention to every little thing that's happening. Here in Rhode Island, uh, we had one seat that was um, making national news because it was potentially becoming a swing seat for the first time in 30 plus years. Um, It ended up going to the Democrats, which was a shock to everyone. We had reporters with the Democrat, but we didn't expect him to win. And it was amazing in the newsroom to feel the shock of seeing that. Yeah, for sure. I, I, mean, I understand the shock. We had some shocks here at HVL. Kate, uh, before we let you go, though, uh, really quickly, what advice would you give to aspiring producers to want to follow in your footsteps? Ooh, I have so much advice I'd love to give. <laughs> the, be- the best piece of advice. I think something that I've said to people, even back before I started working in the professional world, is say yes to everything. You always want to be the person seeking out new opportunities, putting yourself way outside of your comfort zone. Uh, I didn't start at my current job as a producer. I started as an associate producer and an assignment editor, which great positions, very interesting, but I wanted to be a producer. So when my boss came to me and asked me, hey, can you work this weekend? I know you're not scheduled. Or um, can you produce the sunrise show for three days completely upend your schedule and work overnight i said yes and i really think that was key to me getting promoted three months into my job when the 5 30 show opened up and needed a producer well that's so awesome short, Kate. say yes to everything and work really hard that is my best advice i can give no greater advice from the great kate o'brien but thank you so much for joining us this morning really appreciate it Thank you so much for having me. No problem. Hope to talk soon. Talk soon. Bye. All right, bye. All right. Thank you so much to Kate for joining us. I always love talking to Kate. She was a WRHU legend. And we are almost done here on the morning show, but we still have some more things to go through. First of which, and it's going to be a weird transition. How about some dating talk for 839 in the morning? I had the privilege of chatting with relationship expert Jamie Bronstein over the weekend about college dating, if you can believe that interview happened. Here's what we talked about. And you're again, you're listening to 88.7 WRHU. Hey, don't go anywhere. You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake-Up Call, only on 88.7 FM WRHU. I'm Danny DiCrescenzo. Dating in college can be difficult, especially given that some of us spent more than a year with very sparse social interactions. Speaking from experience, I've been in relationships with varying degrees of intimacy and health, 
and most of them haven't been very good. But when it comes to college dating, how can we take a more holistic view of it? Jamie Bronstein is a relationship therapist, coach, and host of Love Talk Live on LA Talk Radio. For the past 20 years, Jamie has guided people from around the world as they navigate the peaks and valleys of dating and relationships. Today, we'll be talking about dating in college, where it's at, where it could be better, and how young people can enter the dating scene the right way. Jamie, thanks for joining me today. Of course, I'm so happy to be here. Happy to have you here too. So my first question is, if you had to deliver a State of the Union address on college relationships, what would that speech sound like? What would its tone be? The tone would be one of inspiration. And it would be, my main messages would be to not rush. There's no rush. I think people in college, I'm giving, I'm actually giving the speech now. All of you guys in college, I feel like you don't realize how young you are and you don't realize, of course, how young you are until you get older. So my wisdom to you is there is no rush. Be safe. Really use your brain as much as you possibly can when making decisions Um, and have fun. You know, this is this is the time of life where you have the least amount least amount of responsibilities and most amount of freedom. So this is the time to really live it up and have fun. And if you do, I know I said don't rush, but if you do happen to find the one in college, you're never too young to find the one. You mentioned a lot about it being a time where you don't have to rush and you're young. So in that sense, why do college relationships both succeed and why do they fail given those parameters? Relationships in college fail mostly because of distractions. And most of those distractions are friends. So it depends on the situation. If you have, if all of your friends happen to be in relationships, it's going to be a lot easier for your relationship to succeed. However, if none of your friends are in relationships and they just want to party all the time, it's going to be so much harder for you to focus on having a relationship. And you know, the problem is that people are not prioritizing each other. They're prioritizing other things. However, relationships do succeed if you are in a situation, like I said, where your friends are in relationships and it's kind of like the cool thing. Um, also, relationships succeed when they're just meant to. You know, it's that you can't even put your finger on it. They're just supposed to work and they somehow just do. And there's a deep love for one another. Um, I think relationships succeed in college when two people happen to be extra mature and maybe beyond their years, more emotionally intelligent. Um, They're able to focus on each other and um, they trust each other. I think trust is a big reason why relationships fail, lack of trust. And then I think that trust, trusting each other is a big reason why relationships succeed. I actually found you because I was reading a New York Post article about situationships, which from being a Gen Zer is a very popular dating phenomenon in college. Can you talk about the situationship phenomenon and why this can potentially be such a pitfall for people if it's not handled correctly, as you pointed out in that article? Yeah, well, the interesting thing about the article was that that the article was about how it's sometimes harder to end a situationship versus a long-term relationship. And so, and the phenomenon about that is because in a situationship, you are idealizing and idolizing the person usually. It's usually one person idolizes, idealizes the other person more. The person that maybe doesn't really want a relationship wishes it 
you know, there's like the person that wishes it was a relationship and not a situationship. So that person we're, we're focusing on them. So the problem is that situationships, they're really like the honeymoon phase. You're not really spending that much time together. Usually they're booty calling ish. And you, so you don't really get to know the other person. So when it ends, you are thinking that this person is God. You're just thinking that you know this person so well. You haven't had the history in the relationship. You haven't had really fights probably. So there's not, the only negative is that you haven't spent enough time. There's not like, well, remember that time when you were, you know, so situationships tend to be very idealized and there's like all positive. If you're just tuning in, I'm Danny DiCrescenzo, and I'm joined by relationship therapist and coach Jamie Bronstein. And I think it's ironic, too, because you're idealizing that idea of I'm not putting any intimacy into it, no commitment. It's just we're going to enjoy the best parts of a relationship without actually putting in the effort. You talked about distractions being a common reason why relationships fail. Do you think that situationships are related to the idea that college students are very distracted or busy with other things? Yes. And also the, so it's a little different than being in in quotes, the real world with the dating apps in college, your dating apps are in the bars all over. There's constant temptations, constant. So it's a lot harder to focus on one person and really being in a relationship. It's a lot easier to have a situationship, um, just a a whatever casual situation. Why do you think it's becoming more and more popular? I think that we are living in a world now because of the apps and because just things have shifted. I think women are becoming more empowered to where, and this is more after college with earning money and stuff, but I think also women are feeling like, ooh, you know, they'll just, maybe they don't need a relationship. They don't need the money from the man. Now we're talking more after college, but, um, I don't know. I think they're becoming more popular because of the abundance of opportunities. And I think a long time ago, before the apps, they're just people felt like there was more of a lack and a scarcity of people to meet. So now it's just more abundant. I'm glad you brought it up from the women's side, because I want to ask you about heteropessimism, this new performative disassociation, performative embarrassment with being heterosexual, it's particularly popular among women. And it's a relatively new idea, at least in terms of it being officially called heteropessimism. What are your thoughts on it? Well, I'm very old school. And I'm also, I personally, in my 20 years of being a therapist, in my own life, I met a wonderful man. I'm married to this guy, my husband for almost nine years. I grew up with this amazing dad. My parents are still married for 51 years. So I have seen wonderful men. They do exist. So I would just say anybody who has a negative, who's had negative experiences with men to know that, and this is going to get into something deeper. We can do this another time, but it really starts with ourself. And I just wrote a book called man, a fasting. So anybody can order it on Amazon. Um, So if you are walking around with these negative narratives and you believe you don't believe that a good man exists, you will manifest. The universe will give you that, will validate that thought. So it's about shifting that mentality to believe that good men exist because they do. And a shout out to good men out there. There certainly are a lot of good guys out there, but 
when it comes to dealing with guys who are not so good or partners in general who are not so good, what advice would you give to people in wading through that? Yeah. And this is going to just get back to, it sounds cheesy, but it's actually really deep. The work that I do with my clients and what I teach is this unconditional self-love and this empowerment. It's knowing what you deserve, being in your integrity, not settling for less and making really good decisions in the moment, I would say. And that takes intentionality. And it, it but really, it really starts with that self-love. And let's broaden it a little bit. What advice would you give to anyone, regardless of sexual orientation or sexuality, when it comes to if they want to get into the dating scene with certain, we talk about situationships, we talk about distractions. What advice would you give to them? This will be just a recap of everything that we've talked about, but it really is, the first thing is, Figure out, do you really want to be in a relationship or not? Because it's not fair to the other person. A lot of times people are kind of half in the relationship and they don't really want it. And it's very hurtful to the other person. So, and get clear on what you want. Now you can do this through a relationship coach like me, or you can read articles, but really get clear on what you're looking for. Get clear on who you are and what you have to offer and show up as your authentic self. Don't show up as anybody else um, and have fun. You know, this is the time. I mean, I believe everybody should have fun forever, but especially in college, once again, least amount of responsibility, most amount of freedom, just there's, there should be no pressure. And if you feel like you're dating and it starts to be very drama filled, I mean, anytime in life, just no, no drama. Do you guys know that song? No, no, no more drama. I've never heard of it, but I'm sure someone has. I'm I think it's from the, <laughs> I think it's from the nineties. Anyhow, um, just be lighthearted about it and have fun and just enjoy, enjoy this time because it is college will end. Um, but then like I'm saying, the good news is that the fun never needs to end in life forever. You can always have fun. If you're just tuning in, I'm Danny DiCrescenzo, and I'm joined by relationship therapist and coach Jamie Bronstein. And let's say someone takes your advice, they end up in a good relationship. College and getting out of college is a period of massive change in your life. If you are committed to this person, how do you navigate that while respecting that their life is also changing in a potentially different way? Well, I love that you're bringing this up because one thing that I did want to say was to give each other space to respect each other's individuality and to, and to have enough trust in your relationship that if whoever you're with, if they have drinks after work, you know, this is different now, drinks after work to trust them that they're not going to philander, <laughs> they're not going to wander. Um, there will be going out with friends still. It's going to be different. So just to to have that level of trust with each other and to joy, enjoy being together when you are and when you're not together to trust that your love is deep enough and nothing's going to happen. I think that's a good way to put it. Just trust is the, the glue that will keep you together. And so let's say in college, things don't go well, whether it was a relationship or a situationship, you're dealing with somebody that you have to put the X in front of. How do you navigate that? How do you handle that maturely if things didn't go well? Yes, this is so hard to do. I'm just going to go back to loving yourself. You know, just you're going to see this person. It's going to be uncomfortable. Show up with your best self. Give them a smile. You don't have to engage in conversation. And 
just know that it was meant to be. If it didn't work out, if it's not right for one person, it's not right for the other person. So don't have it mean anything about you. Like, let's say you were the one that didn't want it to end. Okay. I'm going to take it from two angles. If you didn't want it to end, get back that confidence, get back on the horse, get back out there and find the person that's meant for you. Okay. Maybe not in college, but work on it. If you were the person that wanted it to end, just be respectful, you know, and you see them. That's it. Once again, no drama. If you create drama and if you're creating it inside, then you will manifest that on the outside. So if you're calm on the inside and you're all Zen, there will be no drama on the outside. And for any of you listening, Google, look up this song. No, no drama. No, 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 no more drama. I don't know who sings it, but I think it's from the nineties. You should bring it back. Bring it back. All right. It's our generation's full of throwbacks. I think that'll be the next thing that we put on TikTok, And then all of a sudden it's returning. I was going to say, maybe I'll start the trend. <laughs> I could talk to you about relationships all day. Obviously you're the expert, but if our listeners want to learn more about what you do and what you've done and what you could do for them, where can they find your work? Absolutely. Um, so Instagram is at the relationship expert. There's no E at, there's no E at the beginning of expert. So it's just the relationship letter X P E R T. My website is the relationship expert.com spelled out. Um, like I said, my book called man Fasting. It's a step-by-step guide to attracting the love that is meant for you is on it's available on Amazon now. Um, February 7th, it will actually be published. You can do the pre-order. I'm doing a pre-incentive. If you, you'll see it on my website, if you purchase it before February 7th. Um, and then my, I have a show called Love Talk Live and LA Talk Radio. All the information about that is on my website. And once again, that was Jamie Bronstein, a relationship therapist, coach, and host of Love Talk Live on LA Talk Radio. We just wrapped up discussing college dating, where it's at, how it could be better, and how to enter the dating scene right. Thank you again, Jamie, for taking the time. Thank you so much. This is fun. That was one of my favorite interviews ever with Jamie. Thank you so much for joining us, Jamie. I uh, really appreciate speaking to you. We have one more story to get to, and it is also about dating. You're listening to The Morning Week. We'll call 53 past the hour, Danny, Sabille, Amelia, and Nick. And it's about dating apps. So obviously, inflation has made everything more expensive. Nick was telling us off the air, this is the most expensive Thanksgiving in a long, long time. And dating is also a lot more expensive. But more people are paying, not only for dates, but for Tinder and Hinge specifically. Match Group, which owns both, and I did not know they're owned by the same company, reported really solid earnings in Q3. There was a 2% increase in paid users across the board, and Tinder saw a 7% increase alone. Of course, it's free to use the apps, but subscriptions allow you to look for look for and talk to more potential matches. So our last little conversation before we wrap today, what do you guys think about this surge in dating app membership? We'll start with Nick. Well, everything can be done online and through technology now, and it's not a surprise people are paying more to find their soulmates on the internet, but it's easy to hide behind the screen, and it's not really authentic. I think of the classic romantic movies where they meet each other at a social event or at school and it's great but are we just going to meet each other on zoom now and do a little <laughs> pasta uh, date with grubhub how is that going to work <laughs> i don't understand meet each other in person in person's always best so i hopefully you guys agree yeah i think it's a little bit strange that people are paying for dating apps but i also think that it makes sense and i think that the pandemic may have had something to do with it uh i think that a lot of people, I mean, we've been in person, of course, for a little over a year now, but um, that kind of time away from socialization and time away from like 
society basically and being around other people took a toll on some people so some people would rather just scroll on an app and put a profile up rather than like going up to someone at a bar like I don't know meeting someone more organically so I think that that could have something to do with these um, increases in paid users Sibyl yeah I think it always comes back to to the pandemic with these things Um, I do think that because you can go out and be in social settings it was a lot more difficult actually impossible at one point to meet people organically and I think that maybe we might have forgotten how to socialize with people in a romantic way and now that you see that there's this easy way to meet people online you simply put your picture up and like one maybe one fact about you um people don't want to turn away from that but as far as um like paying for these apps goes I I don't really see I I couldn't see myself doing that for when like there is an option to do it for free I don't know it just doesn't seem like a sensible here's thing my theory well first of all my mom made me pay for tinder one time true story really what? yeah i know crazy what? i don't know why and she's just like i'll pay it for you i'm like okay whoa yeah <laughs> second this is like a year is a year ago now second of all here's my theory i think people are just so much more attuned to the idea of gambling in our society now especially on the sports end but on the dating end too, because it's always, well, maybe if I just had one more swipe or one more rose in the case of Hinge, you get that match. And yeah. so it's like, I'm willing to fork over a subscription, a small fee to get unlimited swipes, to get more roses so that they see my thing first. It just, people are just willing to go that extra mile if they feel like it's within reach, right? It's the same argument, well, you know, you lost at the roulette table but if you just do it one more time this might be your time as uh d mario is looking in on us doing the show <laughs> hi mario um so that's my big theory about dating it's a little bit like gambling on these apps because you're willing to roll the dice one more time instead of going out and meeting someone organically that's what jamie was saying the dating apps aren't the dating apps they're the mm-hmm. or, i mean for if you're old enough the bars but also just social uh social functions or places that you congregate you know you gotta i don't want to use the expression that my friends use but just like have some confidence and ask somebody hey you want to hang out you want to get a get a get a drink if you're old enough or get a cup of coffee i mean i don't drink coffee but uh and i have a girlfriend so i wouldn't be doing this the alpha (laughs) (laughs) but the thing is like it makes more sense to me to pay for like maybe like uh match because i think it is like subscription based like you have to pay for it and i think it's a lot more like um exact yeah but i don't know i feel like if you have a free option i would always pick the free option yeah it's it (laughs) it definitely gives you some ammunition to work with but yeah we're gonna have to cut our dating conversation here unfortunately it's been a really great two hours with you guys as always i'm thankful for you guys really and you know and and i I, again i wouldn't I, I, I'm happy with this crew, I'm happy with the entire department, and I'm so thankful that we could push the show to two hours, and I'm happy I'm doing it with you, th- you three every Monday morning, so I, I thank you for that, I'm very thankful. Much love, Danny. Alright guys, well, if you're, just, if you're just tuning in, well, I'm sorry to break it to you, but now we're getting off the air, but off the charts is after us. You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call, you just listened to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call. Listen in tomorrow and Wednesday, Thursday and Friday we're off, but... Tomorrow you have Matt's crew, but from myself, Sibyl, Amelia, and Nick, have a great Thanksgiving, and we will see you next Monday. And here is Dylan Taganis with 
his song that won a contest to be featured on our show as the outro today. Or so to spin around it and complain Dreams are doused in echoes Lights go out Submerged by the walls of words I drown